Part One, Chapter Five of An Outcast of the Islands by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Five. It was the writing on his forehead," said Babalatchi, adding a couple of small sticks to the little fire by which he was squatting, and without looking at Lakamba, who lay down supported on his elbow on the other side of the embers. It was written when he was born that he should end his life in darkness, and now he is like a man walking in a black night, with his eyes open, yet seeing not. I knew him well when he had slaves, and many wives, and much merchandise, and treading cross and cross for fighting. hi ya! he was a great fighter in the days before the breath of the merciful put out the light in his eyes. He was a pilgrim, and had many virtues. He was brave, his hand was open and he was a great robber. For many years he led the men that drank blood on the sea, first in prayer and first in fight. Have I not stood behind him when his face was turned to the west? Have I not watched by his side ships with high masts burning in a straight flame on the calm water? Have I not followed him on dark nights among sleeping men that woke up only to die? His sword was swifter than the fire from heaven, and struck before it flashed. Hi, Tuan! Those were the days, and that was a leader, and I myself was younger, and in those days there were not so many fireships with guns that deal fiery death from afar. Over the hill and over the forest, oh, Tuan Lakamba, they dropped whistling fireballs into the creek where our prows took refuge, and where they dared not follow men who had arms in their hands. He shook his head with mournful regret, and threw another handful of fuel on the fire. The burst of clear flame lit up his broad, dark, and pockmarked face, where the big lips stained with beetle-juice looked like a deep and bleeding gash of a fresh wound. The reflection of the firelight gleamed brightly in his solitary eye, lending it for a moment a fierce animation that died out together with the short-lived flame. With quick touches of his bare hands he raked the embers into a heap, then, wiping the warm ash on his waistcloth, his only garment, he clasped his thin legs with his entwined fingers and rested his chin on his drawn-up knees. Lakamba stirred slightly without changing his position, or taking his eyes off the glowing coals on which they had been fixed in dreamy immobility. Yes, went on Babalachi in a low monotone, as if pursuing a loud train of thought that had its beginning in the silent contemplation of the unstable nature of earthly greatness. Yes, he has been rich and strong, and now he lives on alms, old, feeble, blind, and without companions but for his daughter. The Raja Patalolo gives him rice, and the pale woman, his daughter, cooks it for him, for he has no slave. I saw her from afar, muttered Lakamba disparagingly, a she-dog with white teeth like a woman of the orange patu. Right, right, assented Babalachi, but you have not seen her near. Her mother was a woman from the west, a Baghdadi woman with veiled face. Now she goes uncovered like our women do, for she is poor and he is blind, and nobody ever comes near them unless to ask for a charm or a blessing, and depart quickly for fear of his anger and of the Rajah's hand. You have not been on that side of the river? Not for a long time. If I go, true true interrupted babalatchi soothingly but i go often alone for your good and look and listen when the time comes when we both go together towards the rajah's kampong 
it will be to enter and to remain lakamba sat up and looked at babalatchi gloomily this is good talk once twice when it is heard too often it becomes foolish like the prattle of children many many times have i seen the cloudy sky and have heard the wind of the rainy seasons said babalatchi impressively and where is your wisdom it must be with the wind and the clouds of seasons past for i do not hear it in your talk those are the words of the ungrateful shouted babalatchi with sudden exasperation verily our only refuge is with the one the mighty the redresser of peace peace growled the startled lakamba it is but a friend's talk babalatchi subsided into his former attitude muttering to himself after a while he went on again in a louder voice since the rajah laut left another white man here in zambir the daughter of the blind omar el badavi has spoken to other ears than mine would a white man listen to a beggar's daughter said lakamba doubtingly ay i have seen oh what did you see o oh, one-eyed one exclaimed lakamba contemptuously i have seen the strange white man walking on the narrow path before the sun could dry the drops of dew on the bushes and i have heard the whisper of his voice when he spoke through the smoke of the morning fire to that woman with big eyes and a pale skin woman in body but in heart a man she knows no fear and no shame i have heard her voice too he nodded twice at lakamba sagaciously and gave himself up to silent musing his solitary eye fixed immovably upon the straight wall of forest on the opposite bank lakamba lay silent staring vacantly under them lingard's own river rippled softly amongst the piles supporting the bamboo platform of the little watch-house before which they were lying behind the house the ground rose in a gentle swell of a low hill cleared of the big timber but thickly overgrown with the grass and bushes now withered and burnt up in the long drought of the dry season this old rice clearing which had been several years lying fallow was framed on three sides by the impenetrable and tangled growth of the untouched forest and on the fourth came down to the muddy river bank there was not a breath of wind on the land or river but high above in a transparent sky little clouds rushed past the moon now appearing in her diffused rays with the brilliance of silver now obscuring her face with the blackness of ebony far away in the middle of the river a fish would leap now and then with a short splash the very loudness of which measured the profundity of the overpowering silence that swallowed up the sharp sound suddenly lakamba dozed uneasily off but the wakeful babalatchi sat thinking deeply sighing from time to time and slapping himself over his naked torso incessantly in a vain endeavour to keep off an occasional and wandering mosquito that rising as high as the platform above the swarms of the riverside would settle with a ping of triumph on the unexpected victim the moon pursuing her silent and toilsome path attained her highest elevation and chasing the shadow of the roof eaves from lakamba's face seemed to hang arrested over their heads babalatchi revived the fire and woke up his companion who sat up yawning and shivering discontentedly babalatchi spoke again in a voice which was like the murmur of a brook that runs over the stones low monotonous persistent irresistible in its power to wear out and to destroy the hardest obstacles lakamba listened silent but interested they were malay adventurers ambitious men of that place and time the bohemians of their race in the early days of the settlement before the ruler patalolo had shaken off his allegiance to the sultan of koti 
Lakamba appeared in the river with two small trading vessels. He was disappointed to find already some semblance of organization amongst the settlers of various racers who recognized the unobtrusive sway of old Patalolo, and he was not politic enough to conceal his disappointment. He declared himself to be a man from the East, from those parts where no white man ruled, and to be of an oppressed race, but of a princely family. And truly enough he had all the gifts of an exiled prince. He was discontented, ungrateful, turbulent, a man full of envy and ready for intrigue, with brave words and empty promises forever on his lips. He was obstinate, but his will was made up of short impulses that never lasted long enough to carry him to the goal of his ambition. Received coldly by the suspicious Patalolo, he persisted, permission or no permission, in clearing the ground on a good spot some fourteen miles down the river from Sambir, and built himself a house there, which he fortified by a high palisade. As he had many followers and seemed very reckless, the old Rajah did not think it prudent at the time to interfere with him by force. Once settled, he began to intrigue. The quarrel of Patalolo with the Sultan of Kodi was of his fomenting, but failed to produce the result he expected, because the Sultan could not back him up effectively at such a great distance. Disappointed in that scheme, he promptly organized an outbreak of the Burgess settlers, and besieged the old Rajah in his stockade with much noisy valor and a fair chance of success. But Lingard then appeared on the scene with the armed brig, and the old seaman's hairy forefinger, shaking menacingly in his face, quelled his martial ardor. No man cared to encounter the Rajah Laut, and Lakamba, with momentary resignation, subsided into a half-cultivator, half-traitor, and nursed in his fortified house his wrath and his ambition, keeping it for use on a more propitious occasion. Still faithful to his character of a prince pretender, he would not recognize the constituted authorities answering sulkily the Rajah's messenger, who claimed the tribute for the cultivated fields that the Rajah had better come and take it himself. By Lingard's advice he was left alone, notwithstanding his rebellious mood and for many days he lived undisturbed amongst his wives and retainers, cherishing that persistent and causeless hope of better times, the possession of which seems to be the universal privilege of exiled greatness. But the passing days brought no change. The hope grew faint, and the hot ambition burned itself out, leaving only a feeble and expiring spark amongst a heap of dull and tepid ashes of indolent acquiescence with the decrees of fate till Babalachi fanned it again into a brilliant flame. Babalachi had blundered upon the river while in search of a safe refuge for his disreputable head. He was a vagabond of the seas, a true orange lout, living by rapine and plunder of coasts and ships in his prosperous days, earning his living by honest and irksome toil when the days of adversary were upon him. So, although at times leading the Sulu rovers, he had also served a sarong of country ships, and in that wise had visited the distant seas, beheld the glories of Bombay, the might of the Muscatee Sultan, had even struggled in a pious throng for the privilege of touching with his lips the sacred stone of the holy city. He gathered experience and wisdom in many lands, and after attaching himself to Omar el-Badavi, he affected great piety as became a pilgrim, although unable to read the inspired words of the prophet. He was brave and bloodthirsty without any affection, 
and he hated the white men who interfered with the manly pursuits of throat-cutting, kidnapping, slave-dealing, and fire-raising that were the only possible occupation for a true man of the sea. He found favor in the eyes of his chief, the fearless Omar el-Badabi, the leader of Brunei rovers, whom he followed with unquestioning loyalty through the long years of successful depredation. And when that long career of murder, robbery, and violence received its first serious check at the hands of white men, he stood faithfully by his chief, looked steadily at the bursting shells, was undismayed by the flames of the burning stronghold, by the death of his companions, by the shrieks of their women, the wailing of their children, by the sudden ruin and destruction of all that he deemed indispensable to a happy and glorious existence. The beaten ground between the houses was slippery with blood, and the dark mangroves of the muddy creeks were full of sighs of the dying men who were stricken down before they could see their enemy. They died helplessly, for into the tangled forest there was no escape, and their swift prows in which they had so often scoured the coast and the seas, now wedged together in the narrow creek, were burning fiercely. Babalachi, with the clear perception of the coming end, devoted all his energies to saving if it was but only one of them. He succeeded in time. When the end came in the explosion of the stored powder barrels, he was ready to look for his chief. He found him half dead and totally blinded, with nobody near him but his daughter Isa. The sons had fallen earlier in the day, as became men of their courage. Helped by the girl and the steadfast heart, Babalachi carried Omar on board the light prow and succeeded in escaping, but with very few companions only. As they hauled their craft into the network of dark and silent creeks, they could hear the cheering of the crews of the man-of-war's boats dashing to the attack on the rover's village. Isa sitting on the high after-deck, her father's blackened and bleeding head in her lap, looked up with fearless eyes at Babalachi. They shall find only smoke, blood and dead men, and women mad with fear there, but nothing else living, she said mournfully. Babalachi, pressing with his right hand the deep gash on his shoulder, answered sadly, They are very strong. When we fight with them we can only die. Yet, he added menacingly, some of us still live, some of us still live. For a short time he dreamed of vengeance, but his dream was dispelled by the cold reception of the Sultan of Sulu, with whom they sought refuge at first, and who gave them only a contemptuous and grudging hospitality. While Omar, nursed by Isa, was recovering from his wounds, Babalachi attended industriously before the exalted presence that had extended to them the hand of protection. For all that, when Babalachi spoke into the Sultan's ear certain proposals of a great and profitable raid that was to sweep the islands from Ternat to Achin, the Sultan was very angry. "'I know you, you men from the West,' he exclaimed angrily. "'Your words are poison in a ruler's ears. Your talk is of fire and murder and booty, but on our heads falls the vengeance of the blood you drink. Be gone!' There was nothing to be done. Times were changed. So changed that, when a Spanish frigate appeared before the island, and a demand was sent to the Sultan to deliver Omar and his companions, Babalachi was not surprised to hear that they were going to be made the victims of political expediency. But from that sane appreciation of danger to tame submission was a very long step. And then began Omar's second flight. It began arms in hand, 
for the little band had to fight in the night on the beach for the possession of the small canoes in which those that survived got away at last. The story of that escape lives in the hearts of brave men even to this day. They talk of Babalachi and of the strong woman who carried her blind father through the surf under the fire of the warship from the north. The companions of that piratical and sunless Aeneas are dead now, but their ghosts wander over the waters and the islands at night, after the manner of ghosts, and haunt the fires by which sit armed men as is meet for the spirits of fearless warriors who died in battle. There they may hear the story of their own deeds, of their own courage, suffering, and death, on the lips of living men. That story is told in many places. On the cool mats in breezy verandas of Rajah's houses it is alluded to disdainfully by impassive statesmen, but amongst armed men that throng the courtyards, it is a tale which stills the murmur of voices and the tinkle of anklets, arrests the passage of the Siri vessel and fixes the eyes in absorbed gaze. They talk of the fight, of the fearless woman, of the wise man, of long-suffering on the thirsty sea in leaky canoes, of those who died many died, a few survived, the chief, the woman, and another one who became great. There was no hint of incipient greatness in Babalachi's unostentatious arrival in Sambir. He came with Omar and Isa in a small prow loaded with green coconuts, and claimed the ownership of both vessel and cargo. How it came to pass that Babalachi, fleeing for his life in a small canoe, managed to end his hazardous journey in a vessel full of valuable commodity, is one of those secrets of the sea that baffle the most searching inquiry. In truth, nobody inquired much. There were rumors of a missing trading prow belonging to Mandado, but they were vague and remained mysterious. Babalachi told a story which, it must be said in justice to Patalolo's knowledge of the world, was not believed. When the Rajah ventured to state his doubts, Babalachi asked him in tones of calm remonstrance whether he could reasonably suppose that two oldish men, who had only one eye amongst them, and a young woman were likely to gain possession of anything whatever by violence. Charity was a virtue recommended by the prophet. There were charitable people, and their hand was open to the deserving. Patalolo wagged his aged head doubtingly, and Babalachi withdrew with a shocked mien and put himself forthwith under Lakamba's protection. The two men who completed the prow's crew followed him into that magnet's compong. The blind Omar with Isa remained under the care of the Rajah, and the Rajah confiscated the cargo. The prow hauled up on the mud-bank at the junction of two branches of the Ponte, rotted in the rain, warped in the sun, fell to pieces, and gradually vanished into the smoke of household fires of the settlement only a forgotten plank and a rib or two, sticking neglected in the shiny ooze for a long time, served to remind Babalachi during many months that he was a stranger in the land. Otherwise he felt perfectly at home in Lakamba's establishment, where his peculiar position and influence were quickly recognized and soon submitted to even by the women. He had all a true vagabond's pliability to circumstances and adaptiveness to momentary surroundings. In his readiness to learn from experience that contempt for early principles so necessary to a true statesman, he equaled the most successful politicians of any age, and he had enough persuasiveness and firmness of purpose to acquire a complete mastery over Lakamba's vacillating mind 
where there was nothing stable but an all-pervading discontent. He kept the discontent alive, he rekindled the expiring ambition, he moderated the poor exile's not unnatural impatience to attain a high and lucrative position. He, the man of violence, deprecated the use of force, for he had a clear comprehension of the difficult situation. From the same cause he, the hater of white men, would to some extent admit the eventual expediency of Dutch protection. But nothing should be done in a hurry. Whatever his master Lakamba might think, there was no use in poisoning old Patalolo, he maintained. It could be done, of course. But what then? As long as Lingard's influence was paramount, as long as Almayer, Lingard's representative, was the only great trader of the settlement, it was not worth Lakamba's while, even if it had been possible to grasp the rule of the young state. Killing Almayer and Lingard was so difficult and so risky that it might be dismissed as impracticable. What was wanted was an alliance, somebody to set up against the white man's influence, and somebody who, while favorable to Lakamba, would at the same time be a person of a good standing with the Dutch authorities. A rich and considered trader was wanted. Such a person, once firmly established in Sambir, would help them to oust the old Rajah, to remove him from power or from life if there was no other way. Then it would be time to apply to the Orange Blanda for a flag, for a recognition of their meritorious services, for that protection which would make them safe forever. The word of a rich and loyal trader would mean something with the ruler down in Batavia. The first thing to do was to find such an ally and to induce him to settle in Sambir. A white trader would not do. A white man would not fall in with their ideas, would not be trustworthy. The man they wanted should be rich, unscrupulous, have many followers and be a well-known personality in the islands. Such a man might be found amongst the Arab traders. Lingard's jealousy, said Babalachi, kept all the traders out of the river. Some were afraid, and some did not know how to get there. Others ignored the very existence of Sambir. A good many did not think it worth their while to run the risk of Lingard's enmity for the doubtful advantage of trade with a comparatively unknown settlement. The great majority were undesirable or untrustworthy and Babalachi mentioned regretfully the men he had known in his young days, wealthy, resolute, courageous, reckless, ready for any enterprise. But why lament the past and speak about the dead? There is one man, living, great, not far off. Such was Babalachi's line of policy laid before his ambitious protector. Lakamba assented, his only objection being that it was very slow work. In his extreme desire to grasp dollars and power, the unintellectual exile was ready to throw himself into the arms of any wandering cutthroat whose help could be secured, and Babalachi experienced great difficulty in restraining him from unconsidered violence. It would not do to let it be seen that they had any hand in introducing a new element into the social and political life of Zambir. There was always a possibility of failure and in that case Lingard's vengeance would be swift and certain. No risk should be run. They must wait. Meantime he pervaded the settlement, squatting in the course of each day by many household fires, testing the public temper and public opinion, and always talking about his impending departure. At night 
he would often take Lakamba's smallest canoe and depart silently to pay mysterious visits to his old chief on the other side of the river. Omar lived in odor of sanctity under the wing of Patalolo. Between the bamboo fence enclosing the houses of the Rajah and the wild forest there was a banana plantation, and on its further edge stood two little houses built on low piles under a few precious fruit trees that grew on the banks of a clear brook, which, bubbling up behind the house, ran in its short and rapid course down to the big river. Along the brook a narrow path led through the dense second growth of a neglected clearing to the banana plantation and to the houses in it which the Rajah had given for residence to Omar. The Rajah was greatly impressed by Omar's ostentatious piety, by his oracular wisdom, by his many misfortunes, by the solemn fortitude with which he bore his affliction. Often the old ruler of Sambir would visit informally the blind Arab and listen gravely to his talk during the hot hours of an afternoon. In the night, Babalachi would call and interrupt Omar's repose unrebuked. Isa, standing silently at the door of one of the huts, could see the two old friends as they sat very still by the fire in the middle of the beaten ground between the two houses, talking in an indistinct murmur far into the night. She could not hear their words, but she watched the two formless shadows curiously. Finally Babalachi would rise, and taking her father by the wrist, would lead him back to the house arrange his mats for him, and go out quietly. Instead of going away, Babalachi, unconscious of Isa's eyes, often sat again by the fire in a long and deep meditation. Isa looked with respect on that wise and brave man she was accustomed to see at her father's side as long as she could remember, sitting alone and thoughtful in the silent night by the dying fire, his body motionless and his mind wandering in the land of memories, or, who knows, perhaps, groping for a road in the waste spaces of the uncertain future. Babalachi noted the arrival of Willems with alarm at this new accession of the white man's strength. Afterwards he changed his opinion. He met Willems one night on the path leading to Omar's house, and noticed later on, with only a moderate surprise, that the blind Arab did not seem to be aware of the new white man's visits to the neighborhood of his dwelling. Once, coming unexpectedly in the daytime, Babalachi fancied he could see the gleam of a white jacket in the bushes on the other side of the brook. That day he watched Isa pensively as she moved about preparing the evening rice. But after a while he went hurriedly away before sunset, refusing Omar's hospitable invitation in the name of Allah to share their meal. That same evening he startled Lakamba by announcing that the time had come at last to make the first move of their long-deferred game. Lakamba asked excitedly for an explanation. Babalachi shook his head, and pointed to the flitting shadows of moving women and to the vague forms of men sitting by the evening fires in the courtyard. Not a word would he speak here, he declared. But when the whole household was reposing, Babalachi and Lakamba passed silent amongst sleeping groups to the riverside, and taking a canoe paddled off stealthily on their way to the dilapidated guard-hut in the old rice-clearing. There they were safe from all eyes and ears, and could account, if need be, for their excursion by the wish to kill a deer, the spot being well known as the drinking place of all kinds of game. In the seclusion of its quiet solitude, Babalachi explained his plan to the attentive Lakamba. His idea was to make use of Willems for the destruction of Lingard's influence.
I know the white men, Tuan, he said in conclusion. In many lands have I seen them, always the slaves of their desires, always ready to give up their strength and their reason into the hands of some woman. The fate of the believers is written by the hand of the mighty one, but they who worship many gods are thrown into the world with smooth foreheads for any woman's hand to mark their destruction there. Let one white man destroy another. The will of the Most High is that they should be fools. They know how to keep faith with their enemies, but towards each other they know only deception. Hi, I have seen, I have seen. He stretched himself full length before the fire, and closed his eye in real or simulated sleep. Lakamba, not quite convinced, sat for a long time with his gaze riveted on the dull embers. As the night advanced, a slight white mist rose from the river, and the declining moon bowed over the tops of the forest, seemed to seek the repose of the earth, like a wayward and wandering lover who returns at last to lay his tired and silent head on his beloved's breast. End of chapter 5 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com